Hey guys, welcome back to Vertical Momentum. I'm your host, Richard Kaufman, also known as the Comeback Coach. Guys, this is going to be a fun episode. I'm so looking forward to talking to this gentleman. We've been friends for years. This is the second time he's been on the show, and we're talking about his brand new book. But he's he's an author, coach, speaker. Um, his book, I couldn't put it down. I got yelled at by my wife, but I had to finish it. So his book is truly amazing. And he also spent over 27 years in the SEAL teams talking leadership, talking about pressure, helping helping veterans with pressure. So, Stephen, brother, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great, Richard. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate being back. Oh, I love it. And like I said, your book, I actually had to finish it. It was so – I got so intoxicated and I had to finish it in one sitting, so – I actually love the new book, and we're going to talk about that. But before I f- forget, because I got a TBI, um, if I don't say it, I'm going to forget. What is your definition of resiliency? Yeah, so I think it's. I think if you look up the classic definition, obviously this can be you know a squishy topic in terms of people think it means or say it means different things. But I always think of it as you know you experience you know, extreme, you know, you just think in, in, in the sense of trauma, right? We have a lot of veterans listening to the show. So think about experiencing a traumatic event. Your, your resiliency is your ability to elastically come back to where you were before that traumatic event. But I, w- I would be remiss if I didn't say that I would also encourage people to think about that, but also in concert with thinking about your next event right? Your next traumatic event or simply your next trigger. And think about how to prepare on the front end, as we say in the military, to the left of that bend. But yeah, resilience coming, being able to come back, come back the same, if not stronger after a significant event like that. All right. So before we get get onto everything else, uh, something you just said just really hit me. I just interviewed a gentleman. He was an Air Force pilot and he talks about now, before before every mission in Afghanistan, they did something called chair flying to where they actually talked about, you know, the mission, you know, what's going to happen and, and how they're going to deal with it. And I think a lot of us, if we, we figured out, well, we know we're going to be going into this trauma and if we start dealing with it before it even happens. I think we have a better chance of having post-traumatic growth instead of post-traumatic stress, correct? No, and that's right. And I like that. I like that metaphor of chair flying because, you know, in the SEAL teams, we have a similar thing before we go out on a dive. And this is all, you know, it's it's what you can do is in terms of a mental skill. We call it uh, mental rehearsal or visualization. But this is actual rehearsal, which is we do a dirt dive. So people are not familiar with and I would argue probably one of, if not the most difficult skill sets, military special operations is combat diving. And we're on rebreathers in about 12, 15 uh, feet of water. And we are navigating through pitch black conditions, can barely see right in front of you with nothing but a compass, a depth gauge and a stopwatch, you and your buddy. And before you do that, you have to memorize not only the compass bearings, but how long each leg takes because everything's based on how far it takes you to swim underwater for hundred yards. And so you literally will go into a parking lot or wherever, and you will have the compass in your hand and you will literally walk through that. Now, if we apply that to say an assault direct action on land, a direct action mission on land, we're going to do something very similar. And this is going to be primarily focused on big moving pieces and also what we call rock drills, uh, rehearsal of contingencies. 
And I would say it's the same thing. You know, whether we're talking about maybe a business setting, especially, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs in the audience, from what I understand, if you're getting ready to do something, maybe it's a it's a pitch to an investor or it's an important uh, engagement with a client, with a customer, you want to walk through the same way you would dirt dive, chair fly, that thing. But you could also apply that to maybe something that you know could be a triggering event. Maybe it's a stressful day or stressful week. You're getting ready to walk through the front door of your house. On the other side of that door is maybe a stressed out spouse, maybe a couple of screaming kids. It's being able to kind of chair fly that scenario as well to make sure, hey, this is what I need to gear myself to. This is what are likely the triggers I'm going to face. But here's what I'm going to stay focused on to make sure that I'm present, engaged, and able to lead effectively in my own home. I love that. Um, all right, so now let's hop back a little bit uh, into the t into the wayback machine. Uh, did you always want to be a Navy SEAL? Was or was that something? How did that come about? Yeah, believe it or not, I was just I was on a podcast yesterday. Where I was joking with a former uh, Special Forces guy. We're going back and forth, but. Uh, and I said, initially, like everybody else, he, he was joking me because I said that when I was a kid, I played Army, right? Army in the woods. And as a kid, I thought I wanted to join the Army, uh, be a Ranger or Army Special Forces, at, you know, Green Beret. And as I started learning more about the Navy, I realized, hey, the Navy has special operations forces, too. They're called SEALs. And the nice thing about back then is you could go right through boot camp and then go immediately to SEAL training. And if you made it through training, you could go right on to a SEAL team. Whereas in the special forces pipeline at the time, it changed over the years. At the time, you had to actually serve in the army for several years, which again, in the grand scheme of things, no big deal. But yeah, I was like impatient and wanted to get right to. So that was one of the driving factors that, and I really thought it was, you know, in my opinion, like the toughest selection process. So if I could make it through that, I could really prove a lot to myself. And so by the time I was in high school, I, I think maybe I was a sophomore in high school and I was like, yeah, I want, I want to be a SEAL and I'm going to start, you know, focusing on training for that. All right. So now I have a question to ask because um, I've interviewed and talked to many of your brethren. Um, I've, I've had Mr. McCaskill on, on, on the show. Yeah. John's, John's a friend. John's a good friend. Great person. Um, Rich Davini. I've had him on, you know, O'Neill. Um, so what, and they talk, I asked them what, the same question I'm going to ask you. I asked them why they made it through selection process and a lot of other people did because it was either going to, they were going to do one more push up or one more rep or they were going to die. There was no quit. Because I, I said to John, I said, John, you know, I always had a thought because I seen the movie Navy SEAL and I thought every Navy SEAL was like six foot five jacked and blonde hair blue eyes and i said john you look like my accountant you know so i said so my theory of what a navy seal was totally off so you know talk to us about what it takes to make it through selection process well let's let, let's be clear you have to be supremely fit and you have to be capable and comfortable in the water those things are all true right you have to be a good you have to be a strong runner you have to be, you know, good at calisthenics and there has to be that level of physical toughness. But everybody arrives, you know, relatively on that level playing field. Now you have former college athletes that can perform at a super high level. You know, swimmers, water polo players are obviously going to have a much, you know, easier time with the water evolutions or tests. 
But really, fundamentally, at the end of the day, when you take outliers aside and things like injuries and and I would say even to a to a greater degree, performance failures or not meeting the standards, which you know you would try, you know, a fair amount of people for that. Really, ultimately, at the end of the day, it comes down to your level of commitment. How much? What are you willing to do? How much are you willing to invest in terms of of pain and sacrifice to make it through? to a community that lets you do the things that you want to do. And that's, you know, ultimately, if there's one thing, that's what it comes down to. So, you know, cause I'm sure you, 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 when you were going through, you've seen many a men ring that bell. And what was your thought process watching them ring the bell? And you're saying, well, that's not going to be me. Yeah. And I, I'm very forthright about this. Like I really went into buds reading the books and to me, you know, I had confidence issues, right? And I, you know, that was the biggest thing I probably had going against me is I, I looked at, at SEAL training as this mythical beast, right? This dragon. And I'm like, can I really even do this? Right. And, and, you know, but it, you know, what I found though, each thing, no matter how hard it was, you know, and it was really hard, it was never quite as hard as I had built it up to be in my mind. And so when I went through SEAL training Really, it was the totality of the thing, in my opinion, is the biggest challenge. I never actually felt like I was going to quit, but I had doubts. But, you know, when I would see other guys quit, you know, I hate to say it, right? It's, you know, it's when I would, especially like during Hell Week and you're, you know, you, you do what's called surf torture, which is where you basically go, you lock arms with your teammates left and right of you and you walk online into the water and you sit down in the surf zone. And that cold water splashes over you. It gets up your nose, down your, you know, down your throat. And, you know, it's that combined with the cold. And, you know, it's just a breaking point for a lot of people. And you're sitting there on the, you're still lined up on the beach. And the instructor staff is coming. They're checking for hypothermia, right, to make sure that everybody's, you know, you know cold but safe. And you would see guys just would, would break away. And the class would kind of be like, no, 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 don't quit. Because that's what we thought we were supposed to do. But each time somebody quit, I kind of was like, it made me feel a little, a little stronger because I'm like, I am still here. They can't take it. I can still take it. All right. So um, let me ask you a question because, um, you know, Goggins even talked about how he, he had to go through a couple times from injuries and stuff like that. But he said, you know, that he struggled with the whole team concept and, and that's why, you know, he got out, you know, a lot earlier than he should have. And I, I believe that, you know, you're only, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And I love that about you Navy guy, I, you know, you special ops guys, because you guys are a family, you know, you guys are any, any special ops, you guys are always family. You're always talking about teamwork. So, you know, talk about the whole, you know, the team concept, because you guys take it to the nth level with the whole team guys. Cause sometimes I am from what I know, obviously I never went through, but, you guys know what each other's thinking because you guys yeah, know so much. So please yeah, talk and about I, that. I would say that differentiates us maybe a little bit. And I, and again, to be clear, I never went through um, army SF, you know, selection, you know, SFA, I think it's called. Um, yeah. Maybe not. I, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on what the special forces selection process is or, or, or RASP for the Rangers and then Ranger school, you know, I, I don't want to speak to that because I've never been through it, but from what I understand, it's a lot more of the individual piece where at SEAL training at BUDS, it's very much an individual effort. And you're tested 
performance-wise on all your skills. But the emphasis from day one is team. And so you literally, how they reinforce this is you get pounded into your head. You will never go anywhere alone. You want to go over to the bathroom? You're bringing a swim buddy. You need to go over here and you're in trouble. The swim buddy escorts you over. You don't go anywhere without a swim buddy. And it reinforces the fact that you need to be effective part of the team because that's one of the things they assess for. It's great if you're, you know, a super high performer, but can I trust you to put the needs of the mission and of your teammates above your own? Because if not, you're not going to make it through. In fact, one of the first things I learned at Buds is one of the instructors, you know, we were getting our gear, freshly shaved heads and I don't know, getting our canteens and our swim bins, whatever that was. And we're all kind of sitting there waiting. And one of the instructors, just this big guy is walking by and he stops and he comes over and he says, Hey, Hey, gents, I don't know if anybody's uh, told you all this, but ain't none of you going to make it through this training on your own. He's like, that's not the type of people that we're looking for here. Those few of you that graduate and make it to the SEAL teams, none of you are going to do great things by yourselves. It's only going to be by, with, and through the people to the left and right of you. And so, you know, everything we do, and in Hell Week and, and up in first phase, it's everything happens in boat crews. That's why you carry logs. That's why you carry these boats around. So that's a long-winded way of, of reinforcing, you know, your your, your point your, that you were making. All right, so then let me ask you a question, you know, because you could have just, you know, maybe did your six, eight years, got your trident, retire as a Navy SEAL, go on all speaking tours, book tours, and all that stuff. But what made you, you know, once because once you get to that 10-year mark, you know, you're either in for six or you're in for a dozen. So what made you want to stay? And what was the difference in your mindset making it a career instead of just making it a stop? You know, there's the overarching, you know, the overarching theme is kind of like you suggested it was the brotherhood. When I you know, when I was going through SEAL training and I, I quickly realized that the caliber of people that I would be working with, I, I was like, hey, if I could be a part of this club, I have really found a family here. And that's really what sustained me. That and I said, hey, I'm going to keep doing this job as long as it's still fun. And when it's not, I'm going to exit. And so I was having a lot of fun throughout the careers and, you know, ups and downs. Not everything is fun. Not every tour, not every position is enjoyable. But for the most part, it was. Now, to be now to be fair... I did come close to getting out at the 10 year mark, but I had some good mentors. They were kind of like, Hey, a couple of times, you know, it was like 20 year mark. I'm like, yeah, well, I I've done 20 years. Why don't I, or up at the 19 year mark. I'm like, I I'm closing on a career. One of my guys that I really respect was like, come on, dude, what the hell else are you actually going to do? <laughs> and I'm like, all right, I'll stay, you know, I'll stay in some more. And even to the very last year I was supposed to get out at 26 years. But I was a part of creating this program for the Navy called Warrior Toughness. And the admiral running the program actually brought me into his office and asked me if I would consider staying one extra year to help kind of further develop and grow the program. And I'm like, all right, <laughs> I'm an easy sale. People could talk me into uh, things easily, I guess. But yeah, there was exit so, point opportunities to leave, but I always ended up just 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 wanted to keep going. So then, you know, what was because you obviously you have to have a different mindset when you go from being on all the missions to now you're starting to plan the mission. And, you know, now, now one day, you know, you're one of the guys and the next day you're making sure that those guys 
get home safe and to their families. So what was that switch in mindset from just be, you know, being one of the guys to being the leader of the guys? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I think I didn't really have that difficult. I mean, uh, of a transition from that piece. I think it's kind of like I did, you know, my time as like an E six and below a petty officer, right. Going through. And then, you know, I went over to, to training command for several years and then came back as a platoon chief, right? The E7, the senior enlisted leader for, you know, an 18-man SEAL platoon. And you kind of always know. You're like, hey, you're going to do this. You're going to go away. You're going to come back and you're going to do your milestone. And I think it's, you know, by the time I got to do my troop chief, it's, you know, that's where you're the senior enlisted leader for two SEAL platoons. And then you really kind of push your back. And you're like, hey, I'm going to go out. I'm going to do all these runs. And then, you know, sometimes the guys are like, all right, can you not talk as much? We're trying to be leaders here. And I'm like, all right, I'm sorry. And, you know, then I'd have to kind of push my push my way out a little bit. And then when the guys, when we went over my last, that was my last operational leadership position was a troop chief. And when we deployed overseas, that whole troop, you know, we're talking about, you know, about 45, 50 people. Now we're getting spread all over the place. And so really there's no – you know, I could go out and do a few things here and there, but for the most part, you know, that time had passed me by and the guys are going out in smaller units doing things. And that would be like back in 2011. So, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, you, you, you miss it, you know, like, but then you're like, ha, you kind of accept it. Cause you know, that's always the way it's going to be. Eventually you have a limited lifespan in terms span in terms of your operation time. You're as an opera, as a seal operator. All right. So I want to take a deep dive into your transitioning. Because I know a lot of veterans, no matter what what branch, how many years they put in, a lot of us lose ourselves because now we're starting all over again so, with our transition. But first, I want to thank our sponsors. As you guys know, I was in the military for, for 23 years with GNC for over 30. I loved energy drinks, but I always hated the taste of them because they tasted like ass. So I came out with my own called Vertical Momentum Coffee, twice the energy, twice the caffeine. Amazing taste, no crash, and the best part is it's all made hand-roasted by veteran hands, and 100% of the proceeds go to help veterans struggling with PTSD and homelessness. So if you love coffee with a mission, definitely check, write coffee down below, and I'll get that information to you. Also, since I started drinking my own coffee, yes, I get high on my own supply. Um, I stopped using sugar because my friend Sam, he's a beehive keeper. Um, he actually sent me honey to try out, and I've been using just honey, and my blood sugar has dropped over 200 points just by using pure honey instead of using uh, sugar. And also, he also makes honey lollipops. So if you guys love honey, if you want some good lollipops for your kids, write honey down below, and I'll get that information to you. So, Steve, let me ask you, um, because you know, like, every soldier – uh, airman, SEAL, you know, we all have a shelf life. And like you were talking about earlier, and you knew you were going to get out at some time. How far ahead did you start planning for your transitioning? And what steps did you start taking before you got out? Yeah, I'll be honest. I, I didn't, I wasn't super forward thinking, you know, as much as I should, uh, should have been. And I think I, I was, coming towards the twilight of my career. And I was really thinking, I'm like, what do I want to do? I was like, ah, you know, I don't know. I, I, I looked at different things. I, I worked before I, I left Virginia beach in 2015 to go up to the Navy boot camp for my final tour up there. 
And while my last job in Virginia Beach was to work at the headquarters um, command, where I was what, what you call requirements combat development, and basically being kind of the liaison, the go-between between the end user, the operator, and industry or programming. You know, basically, and my 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 area was weapons and VAS, so weapons, explosives, and visual augmentation systems. And I was like, hey, I'll do that. I like gear. I like cold weather clothing. I like guns and gear. I'll, I'll do something in that space. And then I realized it's like at the end of the day, if you by the time you do a job like that, you're not even going to be the hands-on gear. You're just going to be running programmatics. And so I'm like, eh. But anyway, it's long story short. Uh, you know, as I was coming towards the end of my career, I really had to reflect and say, what is it that was my greatest contribution to the military, to in terms of service, and how can I take that, align it with my passion, and actually trying to monetize that in some way. And cause I was not going to, you know, I didn't want to go work in a cubicle in an office building somewhere, ride a train into the city. I, I just didn't want to do that. And I'm like, I, I you know, I, I want to connect with people. I was an instructor in the military. I think I was really good at training people. I learned a lot on how to do that training, developing, leading people. So how can I do that? So I decided, you know, I want to be a professional speaker. Because when I go out there on stage, it's almost like fast roping out of a helo onto the target, right? You feel that kind of excitement, mm -hmm. enthusiasm. Yeah. So let me keep doing that. And, and again, I just enjoy meeting new people and connecting with people. So that's kind of what led to that. So, you know, when you got out, did the whole world open up to you just because you're a Navy SEAL? No, definitely not. In fact, you know, like I said, I was supposed to get out in 2018. And I stayed on an extra year. And one of the conditions that I said was, hey, when I, um, if I'm going to stay another year, I want to get no cost orders, meaning like I don't have to use leave to go do professional speaker training. And I did that in this phenomenal place called Heroic Public Speaking in New Jersey. And so I did that. And I'm thinking, hey, all I need, and I was so darn naive. And the point here for other people considering being an entrepreneur is, the thing that you love doing, whatever it is, whether you're developing a, a widget, you're developing a product, or you're like me and you're developing, you're offering a service, the thing that you like doing, you have to consider that's a very small part of what the overall business is, right? The overall investment of your time. And so for me, I realized just how naive and, un, and ignorant I was about not, not only just the speaking industry, but what it takes to run a business. And I was really not prepared. And so I, I invested so much about being good on stage. I, I ended uh, my career. I, I was hitting the ground running. I had some success. And then COVID hit literally two months after I retired. And I was not prepared to pivot into the virtual space. So I struggled for a little bit. And, you know, slowly but surely, I've been able to kind of develop some more momentum and, you know, get more and more speaking gigs, more and more, you know, customers. And so, but it, it hasn't been easy. And it's not like my phone rings off the hook just because I'm a former Navy SEAL. You know, I got to put the work in just like everybody else, right? I mean, if you shot, you know, the number one terrorist in the face, I guess, you know, maybe, maybe that gives you an edge. But for me, just run of the mill SEAL operator, leader, master chief, you know, I, I've had to really work at it. Yeah, I'm not going to comment on that one. So, but anyway, um, you know, because I, I hear it all the time because I, I public speak all the time. I'm on different stages with millionaires, billionaires, um, so forth. And everybody says, oh, 
you know, it's easy being a public speaker. Hell no, it's not, you know, because, you know, it takes presence. It takes focus. It takes practice to be a great speaker, to be a great, you know, to be a great orator. So, you know, talk to us about the learning curve of, you know, talk. There's difference between talking to your group of guys and then but, but then talking on a stage in front, in front of an audience of all kinds of people. So talk yeah, about no, the that, learning curve. No, that's exactly right. Right. Because I spent a lot of time at the, as, as you say, at the podium in the military meeting in front as an instructor. You're taught how to teach as an instructor. Well, what you have to realize when you're in front of an audience, let's say, for example, now I do workshops almost as much as I do keynotes, but your typical keynote, let's say 45 to 50 minutes, you go out there on stage and you're basically unpacking for the audience a big idea or something inspirational, right? And I always try to include takeaway points. Like there, there's always something that I want to be prescriptive, even from my keynotes, but primarily you're trying to get them to buy into a big idea that you have. Now, in order for them to do that, you have to take them on a journey, almost like a roller coaster ride with, with humor, with excitement, with you have to captivate the audience, but you also have to tie into the emotions of the audience. And it takes a lot of skill. And you have to do things that don't detract from that. So it means you have to be very intentional. And, it, and I look at it just like the combat operation where we train, 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 and we practice, we rehearse. We know exactly what happens. We go down the hallway, open door left, close door right. We know exactly what we're going to do. It's the same thing when you're doing this on stage. Every time you move, it's intentional. I don't wander in that. Everything that I do and most of what I say is exactly how I want to deliver it. Now, I don't memorize my speech 100%, but there's a lot of it that is memorized and there's a lot of it that is, you, you know, I know the content so well that I don't have to memorize it. But that's the thing. It's very tight. I rehearse the hell out of it every time I get on stage. You know, and something that I do that one of my mentors, his name is Sean Douglas. He's a three three time TEDx speaker. And he taught me, you know, get to the wherever you're speaking an hour, hour and a half early. Walk around, talk to the audience, talk to the people in the audience, get to know them. Hi, how are you? And talk to them a little bit. So when you go up there, you're not cold, you know, yeah. and you can look at that person and be like, you know, I, I, I always, you know, if I talk to somebody, I'll even mention them during the speech. But, you know, I was talking to John, an amazing individual. So it, it kind of warms up the audience. But it's nice to be able to actually talk to people and get their perspective on, you know, it, building relationships is something I would say. So talk to us a little bit about that and building a relationship with your audience. Yes. No, you hit on a great point. And however possible i try to do that and, and sometimes it's not possible sometimes mm -hmm. you know depending on the industry or organization you're working with they don't really want you behind closed doors until it's your turn yeah. but i always offer like whenever i go to an event when i fly to an event i always insist unless there's something some compelling reason i always insist on flying in the night before and so i always offer up you're gonna have a cocktail mixer you're gonna have something like that because i'd love to be able to just kind of you know with everybody's hair down, you just go in there and have a conversation and really kind of learn things. But what else I'll do is I also will sometimes ask, often I'll ask the people, whoever are bringing me in, depending on whether it's a meeting planner or whether it's kind of somebody at a, at a specific organization that is bringing me in, 
I always say, hey, are there some people maybe that two, three people that would be maybe eager to have a five minute conversation with me over the phone to really understand kind of, hey, this is what life looks like to them. Here's what specific challenges they may have. And here's how I can kind of connect that and roll that into kind of my presentation. So to your point, anytime that I can engage, anytime that I can sit through uh, prior sessions, 100% I want to do that. All right. So now you get out and you decided to become a public speaker. And, you know, like Mike Tyson said, everybody got a plan until you get punched in the mouth. Um, now COVID hits. So now you have to pivot and adjust. So I think pivot was the, the word for like two years. I got played out a lot. Yeah. So talk to us about how you had to pivot to the online world instead of the face-to-face world. Yeah. So it was not an easy journey for me. I, I am not a big tech guy and I have to be, you know, when you, when you're doing stuff like that, or, you know, even today I still do virtual events and you got to be your own AV crew, which it was a steep learning curve. I spent so much money trying things that I ended up not working for me. And I think initially as I'm trying to figure it out, it's like, everybody's on zoom calls. Okay. Well now everybody's on so many zoom calls. You can't show up and just be another speaker on a zoom call. You've got to do things. You've got to really kind of, you got to raise the quality of the presentation, right? You got to raise production value. And so right after COVID, you know, here I am, I'm tearing, I'm in my, you know, feeling sorry for myself, tearing up advanced checks to, to gigs that, that were now going to be canceled. And I had nothing. Like I literally thank God for my retirement. I had no like gigs on the horizon at that point. Nobody did really. Uh, no, no live gigs, at least uh, a lot of people immediately, they transitioned into the virtual space. I, I wasn't prepared. I was back on my heels, but then I really started thinking about it. I'm like, all right, at the end of the day, why do I do this? I love speaking, but what I really want to do is offer a message to the world that I think is beneficial to other people. So let's put aside the money. Let's put aside the medium of how I deliver that. And let's just stick with providing value to people that could use it. Because right now there's a lot of things. One thing military families know is turmoil. They know turmoil, upheaval, gone, you know, spouse in and out. They have to deal with a lot of that stuff. And so I think I have value that I can add there. And so I started just reaching out to former clients and I said, Hey, um, I'm not looking even to get paid, but if I can be of any kind of utility, if I can hop on any of your calls, you know, let me, let me have a shot. And so a lot of people took me up on that. Of course, people ended up paying me for it. And, and I really started to figure it out. And now it took me a lot longer than it should have to get the virtual stuff down. But, you know, I eventually I, I figured it out. And by the time I really got it dialed in, then the actual live stuff started coming back. So. All right. So now I, I love your book. You sent it to me. And like I said, I, um, I, I, re- I really love it. And I've learned a lot so much from it. And I went back and I listened to our first interview just so I can kind of get my, my bearings again. But, you know, a lot of people had to pivot, like we said. And for me, you know, I had to pivot from speaking on stages to putting out digital products, putting it out evergreen products. And, you know, a lot of people like I was with GNC for 30 years. But after COVID, you know, a lot of companies went out of business and I had to realize that Okay, if I was selling products at a store, I'm open from nine nine in the morning to nine at night. But if I put a product out into the ether, I can make money 24 hours a day. 
seven days a week. So talk to us about writing your book and also not only having a physical copies, but also having a, a um, an evergreen product also. Yeah, no, that's interesting. That's interesting take. And so I think initially I, I'm candid with this. I, I have no problem saying this, you, you know, towards the end and, and the concept of writing a book. I'm like, I'm not writing a book because I would always kind of, you know, the army guys, especially like, Oh, look, another Navy SEAL writing a book. <laughs> and so I was like, yeah, I didn't want to be that guy. And so I really didn't want to write it. And then I realized, Hey, at the end of the day, if I want to really get my message out, if I want to be a more successful speaker, then I really felt like I needed to write a book. And so I decided that I was going to do it. And again, you know, to be forthright, I was using it as a way to build my speaking business. No other thing. But as you actually started writing it, then you kind of become more emotionally attached. And then you realize you're like, yes, I believe in these concepts. I think they will help people. So it's got to be more about that. So at the end of the day, I don't know how many books I'm going to ever end up selling, but it's out there. It's something that I can be proud of. I wrote it myself you know, and maybe it, it looks like it to some people, but I wrote it myself and, and it's out there and it's something that I'm proud of. Is it the greatest book out there? Maybe not, but again, it was a great milestone for me. And, and so, yeah, I mean, it's good to have that again. It, it, it hopefully helps me with my speaking business, but it's something that will always be out there. And so you're right about that. Well, like, you know, like my friend Gary Vaynerchuk said to me, he said, you know, the word author is short for the word authority. He said, so when you put a book out, like I, my book hit number one twice on Amazon um, for addiction and recovery. So when somebody asked me, well, what makes you, you know, capable of talking or speaking about this? Well, I literally wrote the book on addiction and recovery. You know what I'm saying? So a lot of times once the people say, you know, well, he wrote a book and it's, so it makes them you become more of an authority in in what you're doing. So talk to for me. I, I'm a low tech redneck. Everybody knows it. So I actually wrote my whole book on a yellow pad, and then put it into computer. Uh, but for me, when I wrote my book, it was very cathartic. Um, a lot of healing happened. So talk to us about the process of writing a book and what was that like. <laughs> Yeah. So I'll walk you through, I'll just walk you through the steps. Hopefully I'm not uh, making the, you know, people's eyes glaze over, but I essentially was like, all right, I got to do this. Initially as my, before COVID hit, I was like, ah, oh, you know, I'm going to be a successful speaker. I'm just going to hire a ghostwriter. Then I realized, you, you know, what I learned about the whole ghostwriter thing is it's, it really is not going to save me a whole lot of work because as I went through the editing process, I realized that nobody's going to write it how I want it. So paying somebody a dollar, dollar 25 a word, not only is it exorbitantly expensive, but I'm still, it's, I don't think it's going to save me that much work. And so I, I, the first gal that I hooked up with, she basically was a writing strategy coach. So she basically said, and, and she was enormously useful. She didn't tell me how to write or any of this. She basically said, here's how to structure, here's how to structure, basically create a battle rhythm on how you're going to write the book, find out when you're going to write it, how much every day you're going to write it, create a framework for how you're going to get this stuff done. And that was a great, really a great way to just get the wheels on the train moving. And so I did that. And then I started, then I, 
took me way too long to finally find somebody that I was going to, you know, partner with a hybrid publisher. And so I, I found the hybrid publisher and then we started creating. I just started writing and I'll be honest and I, I don't hide this. I did not enjoy writing the book, but what I really did enjoy were all the people that I got to interview. And so, as you know, from reading the book, there's some of my stories in there, but it's not a book about me. It's a, I want it to be prescriptive in nature. So there's a lot of other stories in the book, professional athletes, Olympians, business leaders, other veterans. And I all, I want to make that red thread about what it takes to be your best self on your hardest day. And so that's the red thread that goes through it. And so I got a lot of enjoyment out of that. And that was really the favorite part, but going through editing, re-editing, really trying to, you know, untangle a lot of the, you know, the big ball of Christmas lights. And, and finally it was the audio book and I did the audio book. Didn't love that, did it, but knocked that out in about two days and then went back for another solid day to, to do the uh, pickups, you know, the, the edits. Um, but yeah, it, it's good to have it done, but it's kind of anticlimactic. People are like, are you so excited you got the book done? I'm like, ah, ah. it's just kind of like, I don't know. I, I wasn't super excited. The book was done. I'm glad and satisfied and I am proud of the work, but yeah, there wasn't like some big, you know, I don't know, <laughs> but that's just me, right I now. guess. Everybody that you've had in the book and you guys, pick, when you pick up the book, you're going to see a lot of names that you recognize. Every one of them had to go through pressure. Every one of them had to go through problems. If it's not trauma, if it's, you know, pressure in, in business, pressure on the field. Um, so how do we, because I find, even my, my sister said it, we were going through some emotional times with the family. And for me, when all the shit started hitting the fan, I kind of just got focused and I got quiet. And she's like, well, how do you deal with those? Like, because the military, we're taught to thrive in chaos. So talk to us about um, learning how to thrive under pressure. Yeah, I, I always say this. Part of the drive behind the book are the things I learned about my own shortcomings, the things that I didn't get right, whether that's as a military leader or whether that's, you know, more painfully as a spouse, as a husband. And so my view might be a little different. And one of the things that was like really key when I was one of the architects for that warrior toughness program, it was, I was partnered up with a psychologist and a chaplain and we built this program and what was really was vitally important. I think to all of us, to all three of us, but, but especially to me was everything that we teach a young sailor or officer, every skill that we give them to perform when missiles are hitting the ships or bullets are flying I want them to be able to consistently transition that skill set into their personal lives because that was a huge gap in my life. I could deal with the stress in a military context or even like, you know, something big happened. The house, the house flooded or a car. I could deal with that. But it was the little things that would set me off. The stupid and consequential things that would cause my temper to spike and just you know, show up poorly as a poor leader in my home. And that would start to also spill over professionally as I would lose my temper, uh, you know, erratically sometimes with the people that I was leading and negatively impacted my ability to lead. And so 
the things that I learned, you know, in retrospect, and sadly, in some cases, I learned it a little too late. Those were kind of the really the driving factors. And so the military teaches you, I think the biggest thing the military taught me, or maybe I just picked this up myself, is that AAR process, is being able to be reflective in your experience and your thinking. And for me, it's being able to know to, hey, candidly, I did not get that right. And you know what? I probably will maybe make that mistake again, although as hard as I try not to repeat that specific you know, mistake, I will probably fall short again. But I can't let that throw me off the track of trying to be better and, and trying to grow personally. So, and for me, you know, like wh- whatever's going on business wise, um, relationship wise, I always ask, what's the worst case scenario? And then I'll worry, I'm, I'm not going to worry really about the best case scenario. I'm going to worry about the worst case because if it, the worst case ha- doesn't happen, it's in between, then we're still doing good. But I think so many people get wrapped around, get wrapped around the axle and they don't really don't have, they don't think about perspective. And I think that's something I'm really starting to hammer down on in life is the perspective. Like you said, you know, even like Gary says in his brand new book, 12 and a half, that if my family's healthy, my kids are healthy, um, everything else is good. I could deal with everything else. But I think sometimes we get so wrapped around the axle with the little stuff that we don't realize the big stuff that's really important, like like our wives, our kids, our families. I think a lot of times that's more important than our businesses, right? No, that's exactly right. In fact, it's interesting you say that because one of the things I didn't mention during, one of the things that I really had to connect to, as I was extremely frustrated with the fact that I could not get paid to speak during COVID, you know, I, I realized, okay, what opportunity? And I always try to push this concept because what opportunity? And this is where I kind of bring in a little of the uh, the Stoic, you know, capital S, Stoicism from our, our, you know, the Greeks and the Romans is that every situation affords you an opportunity. It may not be an opportunity that you want. It may be painful, but it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to demonstrate grace, forgiveness, resilience, that performance under pressure. And so I realized the opportunity is for me to better connect during COVID with my family. It's to me to demonstrate that I can you know, help navigate that family through challenging circumstances. And so uh, that, that was the big thing for me. So it's, you know, really important to kind of have that perspective. Now, so now, like I said, you have, a, you talk a lot about a lot of great people in that book. Uh, if you would say there's one trait that they all possess that the average person doesn't possess or needs to possess, what would that one trait be? Uh, being deliberate and being intentional. That's one of the most important things is look ahead, look ahead for, and that's the concept of the X. The X is that most difficult, that most dangerous, that most high pressure situation that you're going to walk into. It also can be the situations that yield your biggest opportunities. So you better be deliberate and intentional with recognize those on the outset, looking ahead over the horizon and saying, when is that X going to occur to me? And how do I create the architecture for my success? And when it happens, more than likely, there's going to be some lessons. I'm going to be able to draw from that experience. And I'm only going to be able to grow and further develop and come back even better 
if I have the ability to draw the right conclusions from that experience, but put it deliberately into steps. And so sometimes we need to detach from a situation, you know, detach from the emotions of a situation, look at things objectively and be able to tweak and adjust the plan either on the fly or next time. And the people that I interviewed really had the ability to do those couple of things. No, no. You asked me for one, but I gave you a couple. So it's like, I I love it for for me. You know, I always hear people years ago. I always see people saying, well, this is my word for the year. And I thought it was stupid, but this year I chose two words for me. And one was attention. And number two was intention. Because I think that, you know, if everything you do is intentional, then you're going to get where you go a lot quicker because you're not wasting time. You're not wasting finances. You're on that one goal because you're doing everything intentional. Um, so now talk to us about what you're doing now. Um, and if you had, because now you've been in business five years, 2008, I mean, 2018 to 23, what would be the top three business lessons you've learned that you can teach a brand new business, a brand new veteran getting out of the military today, what what lessons could you teach them, your top three? I think primarily it's about building a team, if building a strong team. And that doesn't necessarily mean a, you know, a, you know, a 1099 employee or whatever, but that's the people you surround yourself with. And I, I kind of refer to this as a board of advisors. And these are the people that serve different functions. You know, you have a person on that board. And again, it's not an official board. It's just a term is you select the right people to engage with, to seek counsel with, to be a sounding board, to give you both overall advice and maybe some tactical advice on the specific things, the the technical advice that you need. And so you have people that are going to be that boot in the ass. that are going to tell you the truth, even when it hurts. You're going to have people that are going to pick you up. They're going to pick you up and make you feel better when you're kind of struggling. You're going to have people that are going to hold you accountable to who you say you are, who you want to be. And then you're going to have the people that you can always reach out to that can give you subject matter expertise to help you. I think that's one of the first things. And then to really do your homework, understand what all of the facets, if you want to be a a solopreneur, an entrepreneur, Really understand before you jump in with both feet, really understand what you're taking on. Talk to people, not just the people that were successful, you know, the people that everything went right, but talk to a variety of different people and find out what their struggles were. Find out how they overcame certain challenges. And I think those are probably, you know, maybe two things that I I would start with right there. You know, and that's something I love that you talk about what you're getting into. I love that you talk about building a team because, you know, I took a deep dive into successful people and everybody talked about Napoleon Hill, but I wanted to find out who he learned from. And that went back to Andrew Carnegie back in the 1908. And even then they were talking about masterminds that if you're going to be successful, you need to be in a mastermind or have a group of, because even Mr. Carnegie you know, back then he had their three or four people um, and they would they would knock knock around ideas, knock around thoughts. So even back in the 1900s, we talk about, you know, they talked about masterminds. 
But if you talk to somebody in 2023 about paying to join a mastermind, they look at you like you're crazy. But even like John Lee Doom was my mentor, said his first mentor, he had to pay $5,000 to be, be a mentor, to get a mentored in a, in a, in a mastermind. He said that was the best $5,000 he ever spent because the next year he got paid $25,000 to speak at that mastermind event. So yeah. talk about a little bit about that masterminds in 2023. Yeah, I'm not, I've been part of mastermind groups and they've definitely helped me. They, I was part of a mastermind group that it definitely helped me out during COVID that the group kind of just uh, dissolved. It wasn't a paid thing. It was just a bunch of like-minded people. And I, I think there's several communities. I have different, I have a speaking community that I'm part of a heroic public speaking that has a, a, a bunch of people that I can always consult with. And I also have another group. I did some, some training with a, a great guy, great professional speaker called Anthony trucks. And yep. Uh, yep. I don't know if you've heard of him. So I was a part yep. of his group and just got a lot of great wisdom from the people in that group. And so again, we don't need to, nor can we do this all on our own. So, yeah. All right. So now last question is how do we find you? How do we support your mission? Where do we pick up your amazing book? So right now, if I look at my, it's uh, it's April 5th. And the book itself, ebook uh, e and paperback is available anywhere online books are sold. And then April 18th, the audio book will launch. And so again, get Audible or anywhere you get audio books. And what is and the name of your book? What's that? What is the name of your book? Life on the X. That's a good question. Life on the X, a Navy SEAL's guide to meeting any challenge with courage, confidence, and readiness. And so feel free to go ahead and connect with me on my website, stephendrum.com, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-D-R-U-M.com, or find me on, on LinkedIn or Instagram. Stephen, brother, I just want to say thank you for, you're one of the only two-time guests I've ever had on the show. I'm so honored. I to, and I just wanted to say thank you. And thank, thank you. you for the, the book. It's actually made me think about a lot of different things in my business and up-leveling my business as we speak. So I just want to say thank you. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. So guys, make sure you, you reach out to him. He's very, you can get in touch with him. He's, he's a very friendly person. He's got a great LinkedIn account. He's great on Facebook. So just reach out, tell him you said, hey, and pick up his book. It'll, it's a game changer if you are a business owner or if you just want to up level in life and business. It's where you can do a little bit of both. So, Stephen, brother, thank you so much. All right. Take care, man. Thanks for having me on again. All right, All right guys. I love you guys. Remember, vertical momentum, the only way to go is up. If you found value in this, please leave a comment below. So um, if you have any questions for Stephen, I'm sure I can get those to him so he can answer your questions. All right, guys, I love you, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. Stephen, have an amazing week, brother. You too, brother. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.